Hi, I'm Adam Phillips, and I love comics. Sure, I love superhero comics, but I also love comics that are funny, or romantic, or educational, or even kind of filthy. Some have been around for decades, but I have a special place in my heart for the ones that came and went in the blink of an eye. We call them one-shots, and some of them you may have heard of, while others might make you ask, why? This is One-Shot Wonders. Okay, this one is going to get a little personal. Before we begin, I want to give a shout-out to Cardi Angelo, owner of Earth 2 Comics in Sherman Oaks in Northridge, California. He's my partner in the Defenders Dialogue with Car and Adam podcast, and he practically dared me to make this episode. So, here we are. In 1974, I was a prepubescent comics fan, gobbling up every comic I could afford, pretty much exclusively Marvel titles. I was completely dependent on my allowance back then, so I had to pick and choose. But when I saw the cover of Astonishing Tales number 25, featuring the debut of Deathlock the Demolisher, well, there was no question that I would make that purchase. I was already a fan of The Six Million Dollar Man on TV, and this looked like a more believable, scarier version of Colonel Steve Austin. There was nothing pretty about Deathlock on that cover, and the story inside introduced a frightening, dystopian future world of death, resurrection, computers, and corruption, including a military-industrial complex that would not allow a soldier the dignity of a hero's death, but instead rebuilt him, adding bionic limbs, a deadly ray gun, and a backpack computer that issued instructions that were not to be disobeyed. A caption on the second issue's cover called Deathlock a death machine, and that's what he was. It blew my mind, to say the least and it led me, a couple of years later, to novels like Brave New World, 1984, and Fahrenheit 451. I was in for a shock, though, when, a few issues later, Astonishing Tales number 29 hit the stands. Deathlock was gone, replaced by the Guardians of the Galaxy? Some cornball team I never heard of? Written by someone named Arnold Drake? What was going on here? At about the same time, my 13th birthday was coming up, and I had convinced my father to take me into New York City from our home in the suburbs to attend the first Mighty Marvel Comic Con at the Hotel Commodore. We drove in, got to the convention, and I hit the dealer's room with about $20 in my pocket, which lasted me maybe 15 minutes. After that, I wandered around and met some pros, including Joe Sinat, Tony Isabella, Len Wein, and a few others. And then I saw him. Stan the Man Lee, the guy whose name was in every Marvel comic. As I recall, he was standing in a corner, not really talking to anyone, looking pleased with the turnout. I approached him, and this is what came out of my mouth. Excuse me, Mr. Lee? I was wondering, uh, what happened to Deathlock this month? He wasn't in Astonishing Tales. Stan flashed his famous smile, chuckled, and said, Kid! With the character that good, you know he's going to be back real soon. I said thank you, and that was that. I had no idea that this answer was designed to make a Marvel fan feel better, that he probably only had a passing familiarity with Deathlock, and that he had absolutely no idea why Astonishing Tales number 29 ran a reprint story rather than a new one. He was 53 years old then, younger than I am now, and he was an expert at glad-handing fans, the press, and anyone else he met. 
As for me, well, I didn't even think to get his autograph. So what was the deal with the Guardians of the Galaxy? The story that was reprinted in Astonishing Tales number 29, minus a few pages to make it fit, first appeared in Marvel Super Heroes number 18, which had an on-sale date of October 15, 1968. The writer, Arnold Drake, is now best known for his work on DC characters he helped create earlier in the 60s, like Dead Man and the Doom Patrol. In the late 1960s, he started writing for Marvel, including an eight-issue run on X-Men, some of which was illustrated by Jim Steranko. Oh, and way back in 1950, he co-wrote a 126-page proto-graphic novel called It Rhymes with Lust that was illustrated by the great artist Matt Baker and published by St. John. I haven't actually read It Rhymes with Lust, but the plot sounds a bit like the Billy Wilder movie Ace in the Hole, which came out in 1951 and starred Kirk Douglas. Probably just a coincidence, right? To jump back a little, Marvel Super Heroes made its debut in 1967 with issue 12, which picked up the numbering from the reprint series Fantasy Masterpieces. It was Marvel's first tryout series. DC had introduced the idea over 10 years earlier with Showcase. The concept was simple. Try out a variety of different new characters, see what sold, and launch those characters into their own series. And at Marvel, it didn't last very long. Issue number 12 introduced the Marvel version of Captain Marvel, Cree Captain Marvel, a debut that was dictated by corporate demand that a character called Captain Marvel be published by Marvel Comics. Following that, there was a one-off story pulled from Inventory starring Spider-Man, plus solo adventures for Medusa of the Inhumans, Sometime Avenger the Black Knight, Fantastic Four villain Doctor Doom, the Tarzan stand-in known as Kazar, and the debut of a World War I flying hero called the Phantom Eagle, and in issue 18, the Guardians of the Galaxy. So what about the Guardians of the Galaxy story? It's written by Arnold Drake, of course, with art and cover, pencil by Gene Colan, and inks by Mike Esposito, under the name Mickey DeMeo. Fun fact, Esposito was the only artist at Marvel who used not one, not two, but three nicknames. Besides Mickey DeMeo, he also inked under the names Mickey D and Joe Gaudioso. The story is titled Earth Shall Overcome, and it opens with Charlie 27, a space pilot born on Jupiter, returning home only to find that the entire colony's population has been corralled and enslaved by the Badoon, an alien race making its second appearance following their debut in Silver Surfer No. 2, three months earlier. After learning what's become of his people, Charlie avoids being caught by the Badoon by using a living matter transmitter to transport himself to Pluto, where he meets another escapee from captivity, a crystal man called Martin X. Together, they distract the local Badoon guards by bringing a display of mannequins to life, then jump into another transmitter and head to Earth. We cut to Earth now, where a Badoon leader is demanding fealty from Vance Astro, a 1,000-year-old man who was supposed to have been the first Earthman to reach the stars. But, as the Badoon's memory probe shows, he was launched in 1988 in a traditional rocket ship that got beaten to its destination thanks to the new Harkovian physics, which supplanted Einstein's theories. Only the copper suit he wore for the journey now keeps him alive, not that he considers his life much worth living anymore. Astro is accompanied by a primitive alien called Yandu, and after Astro insults Yandu, the Badoon leader insists that he execute him to show his loyalty. 
Astro says he'll do it, but would prefer to use Yandu's own bow and arrow rather than the ray gun the leader had offered. The Badoon weren't aware, of course, that Yandu could control the arrow's flight path by whistling, and as the arrow threatens their captors, the duo make their escape. They arrive at the local teleport center just as Charlie 27 and Martin X arrive, and after a brief scuffle they realize they're on the same side, against the Badoon. After beating up a few more Badoon guards, the newly formed foursome climb into a rocket and make their escape, promising to fight for the freedom of all races that originated on Earth. The story ends with the team on a distant planet singing Earth Shall Overcome to the tune of the 1960s protest anthem We Shall Overcome. Not the peppiest tune ever, but it fits the story and the era in which it was first published. It's a fast and breezy origin that ends with the caption reading, The End, For Now. Gene Colan's character art is great. His layout's open and fluid. I don't think of him as a great science fiction artist, but this qualifies mostly as an adventure story. The scripting can be a little corny. Vance Astro says to Yandu, Like we used to say back in 1988, That's the way it moves which even in 1975 sounded silly to me. On the other hand, there's a pretty funny moment at the end of the story where they discuss possible destinations, including New Paris, New Moscow, New Nome, and even New New York. The story leans on futuristic gadgets to establish the science fiction tone. An incendiary drop is a receptacle that burns up trash, Harkovite is a deadly radioactive substance, and Vance Astro's copper body suit includes a psych pusher, that gives him limited superpowers. The script also nicely captures Vance Astro's bitterness, Charlie 27's military gung-ho, Yandu's noble savage nature, and Martin X's anger at the bigotry he's seen against his people. After that 1968 debut, the Guardians of the Galaxy wouldn't appear in comics again till Marvel 2 and 1 number 5 in June 1974, six years later. That was followed less than a year later by an appearance in Giant Size Defenders number 5, which led directly into a four-part story in the Defenders number 26 through 29. After that, the Guardians got their own series that began in Marvel Presents number 3 and ran through the series' end with issue number 12. Almost all these 1970s appearances were written by Steve Gerber, and they were enough to put the team on the map. Marvel superheroes returned to its roots, with more reprints of classic Marvel stories following issue number 20's Doctor Doom epic. Marvel wouldn't return to the tryout book concept again until 1971 and the debut of Marvel Spotlight. Now, let's jump ahead to 2005. It's another story from me. I've been working at this point at DC Comics for about 14 years, and one of my annual chores was to suggest possible nominees for DC to the Eisner Awards Committee. It was a job I took seriously, and it culminated in my attending the Eisners every year, something I actually enjoyed. Despite how long the evening might run, and it did run long, especially before the Inkpot Awards were spun off into their own events, I always loved the atmosphere, the chance to catch up with friends and see people who I probably would never find on the floor. I would take notes on what awards DC won and report back to our publicity team. I'd also take notes on what titles looked so good that I would definitely want to pick them up on the show floor the next day, whether they were nominees or winners. That was the night Arnold Drake was given the Bill Finger Award for Excellence in Comic Book Writing, an award created by Jerry Robinson. This was its first year, and Arnold was its first living recipient, 
alongside a posthumous award for Superman co-creator Jerry Siegel. Arnold had long since retired as a comics writer and had been working for decades with the Veterans Administration, a job he was very proud of. He walked up onto the stage in his rumpled t-shirt, jeans, and his pan-African cap, opened his mouth, and sang. In his cracked old man voice, he was 81 at the time, he sang a sort of folk song about his career, about the Doom Patrol and Dead Man, and about Stan Lee stealing credit from other creators. The sound of hundreds of jaws hitting the floor at the same time? Well, that's hard to forget. Thankfully, the moment was followed by thunderous applause. Today, Arnold's work lives on in ways he probably never could have imagined, with Doom Patrol, an acclaimed live-action TV series, and two Guardians of the Galaxy movies that have made an estimated one gazillion dollars. Both are pretty far removed from the original comics Arnold wrote, but they still share the same DNA. Thanks for listening to One Shot Wonders. I'll be back next week with another One Shot comic. Meanwhile, hit the subscribe button, leave me a review, tell your friends, and go buy some comics.